coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. You never will fully trust them unless you feel that they care about you at some level. So I'll give you an example. You know, during the Euros, Gareth had to leave some really talented players on the sidelines. You know, they weren't picked. Sometimes they weren't even on the subs bench. Those relationships were maintained between him and the players, not only because they can see he's a consistent and competent manager, but also because he's built a relationship up with them over time. He's listened to their story. He's sometimes met family members. He has an ongoing dialogue with them. So they know that he is emotionally available. They know that before he picks his team, he will put their interests into the equation. He might not go with it, and in quite a few cases he didn't, but they know that at least they have a leader that will factor in their best interest into the decision-making. Welcome back to the show. We have a great guest coming up for you. It's Owen Eastwood. But first, big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora. It's a performance well-being growth partner that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars, physical, mental, social, and occupational. So do make sure to check it out at haworalife.com, H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Owen Eastwood, performance coach and author of Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness. Owen is a performance coach with vast and diverse experience with high-profile elite sports teams around the world with a speciality around identity, storytelling, and culture. He's worked with the British Olympic team, the English national football team, Harlequins Rugby Football Club, Scotland Rugby, the Command Group of NATO, the South African Cricket Team, the Royal Ballet School, and high-performing corporate settings. Owen, a New Zealander based in the UK with roots from Ireland, has a unique approach that looks to evolutionary understanding of a team or organization, leadership dynamics, cohesion, wisdom from our ancestors, and what contemporary institutions do very well. Today we start with the imagery on the front of the book and its origins and why belonging is critical for reducing anxiety, improving confidence, and instilling trust. Owen unpacks the essence of the working environment and culture moving forward, psychological safety, and why a sense of connection and belonging is vital. We inquire about sustaining success with teams where there is staff and player turnover, emotional availability for young professionals, and the harmony between boundaries and autonomy, a profound concept called tapunoa. A highlight of this one, Owen eloquently shares the Maori concept of whakapapa, for the sun is shining on us now. Owen Eastwood, good morning. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us from the Cotswolds. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, David. Great to chat with you and uh, beautiful winter's morning here. Not guys like this. Nice and overcast, but fresh in Dublin. So we're, we're pretty happy. Look, there's a lot we'd like to dig into here. Obviously, saw you in Leaders a couple of weeks ago and, and your, your book, Belonging, has really resonated with a lot of people. We'd nearly like to start with, is it a koru on the front of the book or correct us if we're wrong, but what is that image on the book and why was that the image you went for? Well, that's a wonderful question. No one's asked that before. I actually got that designed by an English artist, 
because the the koru, which is a Maori design, which um, is like that wave shape, is I, I learned was is actually pretty ubiquitous through human culture. That we've always different cultures have had this design where um, you know again like that wave shape, but that ends up in a circle, which has always been a symbol for infinity um, and belonging. Uh, the Jewish culture. Um, certainly in Polynesia and other places. So I decided not just to get a Maori design. I wanted something which is more universal, I suppose. So I briefed an English artist who I know well, and he created that design, which you know I really, really love. Well, it looks great on the shelves, and we both have it on our shelf at home. So before we dive into the book, what's going on in the day-to-day of Owen Eastwood at the moment? Oh, yeah, I've pretty much mismanaged this year pretty, pretty badly <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> at the start of the year, I said... Uh, I want to limit the projects I do and just go deeper on them. That was my goal, but I've ended up, and I'm I'm grateful, very grateful actually, but I've had a lot of people reach out and probably overcommitted myself. So just about run down, but not quite. I'm actually feeling all right today, but I've been, when the borders opened with the US a couple of weeks ago, I was over there and then straight back literally that morning to speak at Leaders. And then there's another conference to go to the next day. And it's just, haven't really been living what I what, what I preach around um, energy conservation and well being. So, yeah, at the moment a lot of planning going on. I'm obviously working with Harlequins Rugby. We've got a lot of work to do there. We're competitive, but we've got a lot of work to do over the next few years. Uh, with England football team, they've now qualified for the World Cup that's coming up into next year, and the planning and the piece that you know the, the small role I play is kicking off on that. The on the corporate side, it's been a great year really for meeting some pretty amazing corporate leadership teams in different countries, working with them. And it just seems like this is a moment in time where everybody is realizing that they're going to make some huge calls now. You know, this isn't just an ordinary period of history where you just need to maintain and sustain what we're doing. Everybody seems to have an urgency and a weight around we need to get some big decisions right. Obviously, one of those is, is the working environment going forward. And very coincidentally, with the book coming out, you know, people are talking about belonging a lot and that the cultures going forward, the working cultures are going to have to put more focus on connection and people having a sense of belonging so they stay and, and productive, possibly more than they used to in the past. And touching on what you said there about maybe burnout or, or you know, feeling a little bit over overwhelmed doing an awful lot of things and difficult to say no at times a lot of the work we do here in, in ireland focuses on on the intersection between performance and well-being we see them as sisters right you're not going to perform well unless you're healthy and you look after your own well-being so what does owen eastwood do to look after and nurture his well-being well i completely agree with that you know i i think the days of well-being being a peripheral issue and with a bit of support available if you were basically physically or mentally breaking down, I think those days are gone. Certainly the conversations and the environments I'm in is that we need to think of well-being from an energy point of view, and it's it's just not possible to bring your full energy unless you're well. And you know, my Polynesian ancestors understood this very nicely, I think, that well-being is not just physical well-being, it's not just emotional well-being, it's also your social well-being i.e. the environments you are in, how healthy they are, whether that's family, whether that's teams, communities, you know, business groups. 
Um, it's all very well to be actually emotionally happy at home and physically well, but if you go into a toxic working environment where there's bullying and, and a lack of belonging and respect, then you're not going to feel well. For me, in terms of energizing myself, staying well, slowing down recovery, it's funny actually, recovery is such a fundamental concept in high performance, yet in working lives, doesn't really exist, does it? <laughs> People go out the whole time and they don't create space to recover. And to me, that's, that's madness that you actually have to recover and you need to take some control over that. I think in the working environments going forward, employees will have a lot more say about what that looks like. So for me, just a bit of recovery, not, not, not too much. And then the other thing that energizes me and makes me feel good is just spending time with people. So I, I do need connection time. I like these conversations uh, virtually, you know, I enjoy them. But as you know, it's very special when you actually all get together physically with people and, uh, you know, particularly people you care about and you're working and you've, you've got a shared mission with. So I, I actually do that. I intentionally go and meet with people in order to re-energize myself. It makes me feel better. We've actually taken inspiration from your ancestors, your merry ancestors, and built a company over here that David was speaking about our work. It's Hawara, based off the memory yeah. philosophy well-being. Yeah, it's just as we're going into these organizations, we're seeing that well-being obviously now has a new lens on it. Would you have seen that when you were working maybe in a law firm back in London or over the last few years of corporations that it was always maybe it was overshone? with bottom line results and how have companies maybe reframed how they're looking at well-being from what your experience with them? That's very true. I find one thing which bizarre really is that in these high performance environments, particularly in sport, but also in other pursuits uh, such as the arts, you know, I've had a bit of um, experience around you know, elite ballet, is that each morning the performer comes in and there'll be iPads set up all around the place and actually, they're required to do it, put in basic data about how they are, you know, around the nutrition, their sleep, their quality and quantity, around hydration, but also around their mood and their energy. They'll be asked to score themselves out of 10 for that. And, you know, there will be people in that environment who are responsible for actually keeping an eye on that, monitoring it, looking at the patterns and seeing whether there's things that need to be picked up on. You know, someone's energy or mood levels are, are not normal. And that often there's a, a meeting before the training starts that day where some of these issues can be raised and the head coach and the other coaches are aware of it. It's pretty, you know, I think it's quite a cool and quite a sophisticated way of thinking about the well-being and culture of the environment. But you think about working environments, we're a million miles away from that, aren't we? And, you know, I enjoyed my legal career, but people's sleep was horrendous and, and sometimes a badge of honour. People's nutrition and definitely, you know, drinking and things that, that again was was all part of it. Where you were, you know, you were very late night, drunk too much, eat poorly, and then you turn up the next day and you know you sort of joke about it. People's energy levels and mood levels just not evaluated or factored in whatsoever. And I, I remember one of the lawyers in our team having a really tough time personally and quite possibly suffering from depression. And I remember some partners were talking about this and, and, and actually a really nice guy, but I remember one of the partners saying, you know, that's sad that they're having issues, but, you know, being professional means that you turn up and you have the right mindset and you have the right energy to do the work. And, you know, this is not very long ago. So 
I think there's a massive gap actually between how we treat performers in those elite environments and how we treat all the rest of us. And I don't see any reason why that gap isn't closed. And uh, you know, I'd like to think in the next few years, all of us will have an opportunity to be able to record and inform our employers about how we're feeling and what our energy levels are like and things like that, and for them to put things in place to help us when we need it. And with people going back to work now, you know, the hybrid world, future of work, remote working, all these, all these words we've heard, obviously a lot of, of leadership, HR departments, people are concerned about connection, teaming, relationships, that whole kind of story the story of us and kind of what would make that team successful. How can environments ensure that they manage to bring people back together and kind of bring that unity and connection back? Because that's definitely been challenged over the last two years. Yeah, well, as you know, from having read Belonging, I strongly believe that our ancestors had a much better idea of what makes teams strong than we do, because ultimately they only had each other. And uh, now we've got all sorts of technology and strategy and organizational stuff and consultants and all the rest of it. And there's all these books and it's just so complicated and there's so much noise around how you create a good environment. But our, our ancestors didn't have any of that. And they had, a, therefore, in my view, a very clear view of what makes teams strong and what makes them weak. And the first thing that they all would always, and I'm talking about across all of our cultures, from Ireland to Polynesia, when I'm, I'm part of both of them. First thing was making sure people had a sense of belonging because when people had a sense of belonging, their anxiety levels reduced and that had a big effect on people's behaviour. You're able to uh, have a sense of confidence in the people around you, you could trust them, you, therefore you could work together in a way, you could uh, make sacrifices for each other because you realised that through thick and thin, you were going to, you belong together and you were going to go through this whatever challenges together. So we need a sense of belonging. So belonging cues are really, really important. If you feel excluded, if you feel like you're not really part of who we are, then it has creates a massive anxiety reaction and it really affects and downgrades a lot of your thinking and behaviours. So we're not interested in that. And the other, the ancestors were also very clear on that you needed to know what you were belonging to. So they were very good at articulating a story of who we are. And often it was quite inspirational. So this tribe, this community, this family, this nation, you know, there's stories and there's, we still have these stories about who we are. And that's really important because if notwithstanding our diversity, we can attach ourselves to being part of us. And, you know, there's a lot of research which shows that human beings do look at the world as us and them, which has got a lot of negative connotations to it, but it is just the way we think about things. So we are tribal in a way. So we don't have to be degrading others, but we, our leaders should, certainly should provide a story that we want to attach to in terms of who we are. And then another big part of how we create this connection is that while we're doing all the work, we're not just sort of each day performing a task and then another task and then another task, that we want to feel that we're part of an, a story that's revealing itself. So the story of who we are is something that hasn't ended you know, when we arrived, it's something that we're part of now and it's something that will go into the future. So good leaders are able to explain and actually take the time to create these town hall type environments. And you can do that online as well about this is what is happening to us right now. This is how we're performing right now. These are the challenges and everybody feels part of it. And everybody, you know, as someone said the other day, and I thought it was a good analogy, it's like good leaders are able to create a Netflix series about us. And what I mean by that is 
everything that's going on at this point in time is like an episode in the story. Um, and at the end of the episode, we always preview the next one. So leaders are good at that. They, they, they should be able to tell us this is what's going to come next. But also in a Netflix type series, there's often flashbacks to the past, which give us deeper meaning as to what's going on. That's important for leaders to be able to do that as well. So if we're facing adversity right now, if we've got a particular type of challenge, it's really useful if they are able to flash us back into the past to say people before us also face similar challenges and they were able to overcome it. And this is how they did that. And, you know, either through their values or certain traits that they have. And this is what we need to sort of replicate ourselves. So I think those things around belonging, around the story of who we are and around visioning, you know, what's coming up. They are the things that connect people rather than just sort of sitting around and doing team building exercises. And I fully agree belonging is such a huge part. And the way you mentioned it as an evolutionary need, hardwired. Why do you think we've lost our way and we've become disconnected with that hardwired need? Well, I've learned a lot from the evolutionary psychology guys at Oxford University. You know, they've explained to me that 99%, actually more than that, of human history, we were hunter-gatherers and we were fundamentally part of our kin, our extended families, but we're also part of bands of people. And these would often not exceed 150 or so people. So we spend most of our time in these bands of 150 people down to smaller groups, maybe 45, 50 people, um, could be our extended family. And they were part of wider tribes, but we, we sort of lived in specific areas with these bands of people. And in those environments, you knew everybody, and actually it was quite a democratic culture. Um, the leader was there to look after everybody. It's a fundamental role. They weren't dictators in those small groups. They were only there because people allowed them to, to lead. But what happened about 10,000 years ago is agriculture was developed. And from that, it just caused a fundamental change in the way human beings arrange themselves. All of a sudden, we stopped sort of moving around so much and became a bit more static. We developed not only these villages, but actually extended to towns and then to cities. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So all of a sudden, the sort of intimate way that we were used to, where belonging was something very visceral because we knew everybody in our band or in our family, we started to become part of these communities where there was, as I said, hundreds of thousands and millions of people where you don't know all the people around you whatsoever. In those contexts, your sense of belonging is reduced and that creates a lot of anxiety and lack of cohesion in in communities which you still see um, now in terms of crime, in terms of all sorts of social problems. All these forces were unintentional in a way, but they've undermined our sense of belonging. But it's never gone away. It is completely hardwired into our biology that when we go into a, into a situation where we don't actually feel we belong, we feel like an outsider, we feel like people are judging us, they're not including us, we still have this incredible hormonal reaction. So our biology and our psychology has not changed, but our environments have. So I think, you know, the smart leaders, and you see it in sport sometimes, which is great, but also in other parts of society, you know, we try to gather smaller communities where we feel that sense of belonging, whether it's a church, whether it's going to a sporting game, and, you know, smart working environments do the same thing. And they take us back in many ways into our evolutionary past where we are part of a smaller group of people where we feel a sense of belonging, we feel like we're at a shared mission together and we feel this could be a safe place. And if you can tap into that, then I believe that's where you start to really explore people's potential. I don't believe you can get people to their full potential when they are in a state of anxiety, feeling like an outsider. 
Taking that to, say, sporting environments in the US, if we look at NFL, NBA, it's nearly like a revolving door, you know, in the offseason. So many players coming in and out, so much overhaul of staff, performance department and players on court or pitch. How can a team in that sort of environment have sustained success? Like in contrast to maybe a team like Quinns or Munster or Leinster, when the players have for the most part been there through the academy and for maybe five, six years. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure there's a massive difference. I know at Harlequins we've got a, a, quite a large number of players whose contracts are each year come up for renewal. And um, so there, there's disruption in most sports, I think. But taking up on your point, good coaches are able to make sure that people are very mindful of this is who we are right now. And so belonging isn't about, you know, giving people promises that you're going to be here for 10 years. That's, that's not what belonging is. Belonging is a group of people who are together right now in this moment and they feel that they're part of this shared identity and they feel that they are seen and that they fit in and they have a role. And what happens in the future happens in the future. My father passed away when he was very very young. And so, so belonging is not about guaranteeing people are around for a long time. It's the quality of connection when you are together. And I've had chats with NFL teams about this as well, is that to me, it's not any excuse to say we can't build a culture of belonging because we have such a great turnover every year. It's, it's irrelevant that from a performance point of view, we're always telling and teaching people and giving them the skills to be mindful. And we need to be culturally mindful as well. That whatever's happened in the past, where you came from, whatever's happened, going to happen in the future, which we don't know, right now we're together. And we've got a shared identity and we've got a mission to go on together. And so while we're together in this moment, everyone should feel valued and that you've got a role to play right now. And, you know, that's my approach to it. If you look at the All Blacks, probably one of the greatest cultures of belonging anywhere, no one there is guaranteed anything. But when they are together, they have a profound sense that they belong to a rich heritage, but also they belong with each other. And, and just building on the togetherness piece, and when we look at team cohesion, fostering, nurturing trust, which obviously is so important for instilling confidence and re reducing anxiety. Really, we both really loved the the concept of tapu noa, kind of understanding of, of boundaries, but then the ability to freely express and where autonomy comes into it. It'd be great if you could just unpack that for our listeners. I think they'd get a lot of value from it. Mm. Yeah. And again, these are ideas which come from our ancestors across different cultures all over the world. I, in belonging, I obviously focus on the Polynesian culture, which I was taught. And something very, very simple to understand, I think, is that there's this concept of harmony. And you find it in Buddhism and, and all sorts of religions as well. But in my Polynesian culture, the idea is they use a tapu, T-A-P-U, which means this is sacred, this is non-negotiable, this is what has to be done. And then a separate concept, Noah, N-O-A, which is this is where you are free to express yourself. And the insight, which the science is completely reaffirming all the time, is that human beings seem to thrive where there's harmony between tapu and Noah, between being told these are the boundaries, but also being given autonomy within them. And, you know, having... You know, being a parent, I can absolutely see that, is if we overwhelm with rules and direction and this is what must be done, 
then that creates an, an anxiety and a lack of motivation. Whilst if we just say to people, just do whatever you want, there's no rules, no boundaries, nothing, just be fully autonomous, then that completely stresses people out as well because that is chaos and people do not enjoy chaos. They feel very stressed. So there is a balance. And it's really beautiful how our ancestors were so clear on this and how the re- and the modern research is reaffirming it all the time. So in, in the environments I would work in, in a, in a performance environment, it's one of the things I'm constantly looking at is in this environment, what is the harmony between tapu and nawa? And often I go, go into an environment and it's just overwhelmingly tapu, i.e. these are the rules, these are what you must do, these are the punishments if you don't do them. Very, very little autonomy, you know, in terms of the game plan, in terms of our training, in terms of our views on the way we set this team up. We're not asking for people's views. We're not giving you autonomy around that. We're telling you this is the way it must be done. So that's that's often the case. Part of my challenge is to try and move to a bit more harmony around those two things. And as part of your work, one of the more recent examples of a team maybe that has changed what seems like the external lens, anyway, the collective cohesion seems to improve immensely over the last few years is the England national football team. And you mentioned that you do when you work, you come in and you spend a lot of time, even months, learning and understanding the culture, the heritage, Fark Papa of the team. What was the, the harmony like? What was the environment like in the England setup when you went in? Has it changed drastically the last few years? Yeah, I got involved, I think, in 2016. The FA asked me to not just look at the senior men's team, but actually all 14 national teams. Just They could see there was an opportunity to take the culture of those teams to another level and they just wanted to explore it. So my approach always is I don't have, you know, the Owen Eastwood model. We do one, two, three, four and five and we, you know, win a competition. I don't believe in that. I believe everything is incredibly contextual. Um, You know, the All Blacks have found a really good way to get the best out of themselves. I'm very confident that you transplant that in just about any other team and it wouldn't work. These things are all about the people, they're about the, their identity story, um, all the different influences around them. So, yeah, I, I spent, I think, about four months just listening and learning. It wasn't just looking into the past. I, Wayne Rooney was the captain at the time. I went up to Carrington, spent some time talking to him. Talked to quite a lot of the contemporary players, and not just the senior players, men's and women's, um, under-21 players, and different coaches in the system, just to try and understand where they were all at. And I suppose... To simplify it, the environments were very tactical, technical, training-based. I mean, Michael Owen, I mentioned in my book, you know, he told me he was in the England team for 12 years and they never had one conversation about the actual why, why they actually want to go to these tournaments and do well. They never had any conversations ever around, we're playing for England, so, so what does that mean? Well, I mean, what's the difference between playing for England and playing for our clubs? What? What is it to be represent England? What does that even mean? And I, I think, the, also, I think it wasn't as relational. I'm generalising here a bit, but I think a lot of the, these players are just young men and women, aren't they? And they want to be surrounded by leaders who care about them. And often there's so much busyness and noise and tactics and all the rest of it that that gets lost. So I think they my impression from talking to them at that time was that they were looking for more of a relational type of leader so I think everything worked out quite nicely and that Gareth Southgate ended up about a year later becoming manager of the team 
And um, he is by far and away the main influencer on how that team has evolved and maturated and become more competitive. Um, but it's, from my point of view on the sidelines, it's been really wonderful that a lot of what they were looking for, he embodies. He's highly relational, completely authentic. He is interested in, in creating a space for them to talk about what it is to play for England and what it is to be English. He also is very confident to have conversations with them about well, why it would be good for other people if we do well in this tournament, you know, particularly the English nation. And then before the Euros, he created that space for them to think about a nation that had suffered for a, quite a long time, had a lack of joy and shared memories. The team were motivated to do something about that. So, yeah, th- that's how I would really put it, is that uh, his leadership style was just exactly what was needed to take them to another level at that time. And taking it to another level, even flipping into the corporate world and psychological safety, authenticity, you know, relational values, all really important. What we're seeing with young professionals, Gen Z, is empathy is something that has to be has to be there, has to be part of it. There was a term you had in your book about emotional availability. It was something we hadn't really come across. We wanted to understand where does that come into play because that could really resonate with those young professionals, especially returning to work and trying to really understand meaning, values, their purpose as to what they're doing. Yeah, well, I'm pleased you've, you've raised that point. I think it's so important. And again, like everything, hopefully, in this conversation, these are quite simple ideas. You know, I'm not a big fan of managers getting training about empathy something about that feels completely wrong to me um hopefully that's part of our humanity that you know when you have another person in front of you you're able to see the dignity of that person if you can't do that then i'm not sure you should be managing in the first place so now i'm looking at it from a slightly different angle trust i've been taught really boils down to your prediction of others behavior So we can talk about all sorts of things, but fundamentally, whether I trust you or not is around my prediction of what you're going to do next. And what was really interesting to me when I was researching the book was that obviously the things that help you predict other people's behavior are their competence, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially in high performing environments, you can't be you can't trust someone to deliver their performance if they're not competent enough to do it so competence is important consistency is really important because obviously the 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 wider the data set in terms of of how they react in certain situations the more confidence you can have in them and therefore the higher your prediction will be that they'll do it again whilst if you know inexperienced people come into a team and you've never really seen them in those situations it's harder to trust them because you haven't got that body of work to back it up so th- those things are obvious. You also want people who buy into the team rules rather than just complete um, individualists. So that, that helps you predict people's behaviour as well. But one thing I was, I was very lucky to talk to Robert Sapolsky, who's a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University, and he made a great point to me, which was that all of those are important in determining trust, but one thing that is really, really important and undervalued is emotion availability of a leader. What that means is even if your leader is competent and consistent in these things, you never will fully trust them unless you feel that they care about you at some level. So I'll give you an example. You know, During the Euros, Gareth had to leave some really talented players on the sidelines. 
You know, they weren't picked. Sometimes they weren't even on the subs bench. Those relationships were maintained between him and the players, not only because they can see he's a consistent and competent manager, but also because he's built a relationship up with them over time. He's listened to their story. He's sometimes met family members. He has an ongoing dialogue with them. So they know that he is emotionally available. They know that before he picks his team, he will put their interests into the equation. He might not go with it, and in quite a few cases he didn't, but they know that at least they have a leader that will factor in their best interest into the decision-making. And that sounds very, very simple, but often that is completely lacking. People know that decisions are being made at work or even in sport or whatever. They don't actually have a strong sense that the coach has taken time out to think it through from their point of view as to how this might affect them. And therefore, and that's because they don't have enough connection between them. There's that emotional availability isn't present. So to me, that's a really important aspect of both trust and psychological safety is that leaders need to make themselves emotionally available to make a connection with their, their people. Really good. Two last questions. Um, there was an amazing quote, if, if you own your memory, you can own your future. Sir Tippin O'Regan and what, what are we looking for? If we're projecting forward six to seven generations from now, what do they want to have seen when they look back as, to us, this generation as ancestors? What would we have done really well? What could we do really well? Well, as you know, in Belonging, you know, one of the threads of the book is this Maori concept of whakapapa, which is that we're all part of an unbreakable chain of people going all the way back in time to our Genesis story, but also part of this unbreakable chain of people going into the future to the end of time. And we think about it that the sun slowly moves down this line of people from our first ancestors to the rest and eventually onto us. Right now, the sun is shining on us. And strong cultures are ones where people are able to pause for a moment and think carefully, what do we need to do to strengthen this group, this community, while the sun's shining on us? It's not just about what we can get out of this, it's what do we need to do to be good ancestors to those who follow us? And I think if you look at climate change, for example, it's a good example of what terrible ancestors we are. We, we're just not addressing that. We're not making the changes required. We're just passing the ball down the line. So the sun's shining on us. We're still having all this comfort, but we know that generations following us are going to have to sort it out. That's not what strong cultures are built on are built on right now, we need to do something to give them the best conditions to thrive in. So it is a pivotal moment from a work point of view, I think, because the, the traditional culture of coming into an office or going into a work site, those going into a factory, it's changing through the hybrid working where people are going to want to work more remotely. Uh, also with artificial intelligence coming on board, all of these things, there are going to be fundamental changes. So I think for leaders right now, particularly in a corporate working space, they can leave a real legacy by having a very progressive approach to what a great working environment will look like for the generations that will follow, even if it's a bit uncomfortable for us now. And that should include some real fundamental sense of well-being, but also giving them a sense of purpose and identity that they can attach themselves to. Because Part of a successful team is that cohesion where people want to stay. They want to come, but they also want to stay. And, you know, there's lots of data around at the moment. There's incredible high turnover rates across all sorts of industries. That is not a recipe for great, successful teams. So I think that you're going to have to be really super smart about not only attracting talent, but retaining it. And, you know, the progressive approach to what the working environment will be will be required. 
Owen, thanks a million for so many great lessons in a short space of time. It's been excellent. We have just one last question, and it's the signature question of the show. It's what does high performance mean to you? I think high performance means to me that two things really. One is that I am approaching, although I never will fully get to my full potential, but I'm approaching it. I'm pushing myself hard. I'm learning. I'm getting better as I go. Uh, that's part of it. And the second part of high performance to me is just this relentless consistency. Uh, I heard a great talk by Richie McCaw a few years ago where he was saying that when he first went to a World Cup, uh, he thought that in order for the team to succeed, they needed to be 10 out of 10 um, in the semi final and in the final. And they weren't and they lost. And he, his reflection going away from that was that if you've got good talent, you actually don't need to be 10 out of 10. What you need to be is consistently 8.5 out of 10. So whether that's your attitude, whether that's your nutrition, whether that's your mental skills, you know, whether that's your clarity, you know, obviously the team culture, all of these things, you need to create a line of 8.5 and, and be living above that consistently. And if you do that and you've got decent talent, then you will compete with anybody. I, I really like that. So for me, in the work that I do, but also for myself personally. I'm not trying to be perfect, but I'm trying to be as close as I can to 8.5 every day. Owen, thanks for giving us energy today and for also just putting it out there, for providing a platform for us all to better understand ourselves and improving our self-awareness because that's that's really, really important for, for well-being and performance. So, yeah, thanks a lot for your time. In, enjoy the fresh weather in the Cotswolds and, and stay well, stay healthy. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you guys do. It's really, really important. You do it very, very well. Thank, Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.